according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, turning in our Bibles to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we're still looking at verses 1 through 3. We got a first glimpse of these verses last week. Didn't uh, get really much past verse 1, so we'll be right back there again here this morning. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. In preparation for the study of the Word of God, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege that it is. Father, who are we that we should enter into your presence or enter into your counsel? And yet you invite us here. You command us to come boldly. And so we do, Father. We present ourselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Father, we ask for your faithfulness once again to open our eyes, to open our ears, to soften our hearts, that we might receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 11 took us several weeks to get through. In fact, it became the longest of the chapters to go through because there's so much there in terms of the Old Testament heroes, these examples of faith. We learned that uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and by it the men of old gained approval. That is, they obtained a witness And so chapter 11 spent quite a bit of time demonstrating the witness, multiple witnesses that different believers had throughout the Old Testament. And these witnesses, the witness of of, uh, Abel and the witness of Noah and the witness of Abraham and all these other witnesses that we had. In fact, the author himself ran out of time. He said, time will fail me. (laughs) And uh, he just rushed through the end of the chapter by referencing uh, Samuel and and, uh, David and the prophets. But as the chapter comes to an end, there is a contrast between them and us. And I don't ever want to lose sight of that. So I may may actually use Hebrews 11, 39 and 40 as an introduction to everything we do here in chapter 12, just so that we don't lose sight of it. When When chapter 11 comes to an end, it says, all these having obtained a testimony or gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. In other words, they all died. They all went, you know, they they ended their physical life and the kingdom isn't here yet. It's still not here yet in 2020 AD. Because God has provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And so this becomes foundational. This is key. There's us and there's them. And it's not believers versus unbelievers because they were also believers. They were saved, saved, saved. They have eternal life. But we are in Christ, and that's huge, all right? So in their stewardship, they are still waiting for a promise to come. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so they had expectations, we have expectations, and they are not us, we are not them. And so some of these studies are actually fundamental to uh, a dispensational hermeneutic. They're fundamental to, uh, to our understanding of the Scriptures. And when they get muddled, you end up with all kinds of problems, theologically and, and interpretively and, and everything else. So just keep that in mind, because he's kind of brought the them to a conclusion, and now he's turning to us in, uh, in chapter 12. So apart from us they would uh, not be made perfect. God has provided something better for us. And he describes this now in chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay, there's a lot of us's in that verse. But uh, this is what we're looking at. And this is our mandate This is our prime command in the church age. For you and I as believers, we have to be running with endurance this race that's set before us. 
that uh, we have a race, we have a, a fight to fight, a race to run, and uh, the different metaphors that are there uh, that, uh, that the Bible gives us. And all these Old Testament saints are now like spectators in the, in the stands. They are watching. All of these uh, Old Testament witnesses have filled the stadium, so to speak, to observe the church run its race. They're watching us, and we are running in full view of them. That's key. We're running in full view of them. And uh, if we lose sight of the sacrifices they made, we're in trouble. And if we lose sight of the Lord, we're in real trouble. And that's what's going to get stressed here is that even though they're surrounding us and even though we can see them and they're watching us, we only have eyes for the Lord. That we're fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And so it's interesting, this athletic metaphor here and the the idea of these witnesses that are surrounding us. And so watching us run our race, because as we run our race, they're going to become perfected. When the church fulfills its role as the bride, then they're going to be perfected. He can't bring in the kingdom for Israel until the bride is complete. In some respects, it's a little bit tangential to get there this way, but this approach is a useful uh, illustration to show the pre-tribulational rapture of the church to show that the fulfillment of the church has to be complete so that they can have their fulfillment, so that Israel can enter into their eschatology, as we understand it. And so last week we were talking about this. We were talking about uh, taking off the things we have to take off. This is not the only verse in the New Testament that tells us to take something off. All right, So we are to take it off and lay it aside. The encumbrances and the sin. Two different items. Beyond uh, this passage, of course, we've got other uh, commands in the New Testament to take things off, to take off the old man, to lay aside the deeds of the flesh. The other things that we're supposed to take them off, lay them aside, and don't pick them up again. See, uh, Romans 13, Colossians 3.8, Ephesians 4.22 and 25, James 1.21, and 1 Peter 2.1. Those are all passages that are describing taking off an old garment to put on the new garment taking off, laying aside the old man to take up the new man. And uh, the contrast there that we would describe in terms of spirituality versus carnality. And when you commit a sin and you go into carnality again, uh, it's like putting on that old body of sin again, the thing that should be forever off because Christ uh, paid for that on the cross. So laying it aside. And the metaphor is also consistent with the uh, Greco-Roman practice before the uh, athletes would begin the competition, uh, they, they stripped everything. They stripped off. And they competed buck naked in all the, the competitions that they had. So the metaphor makes sense. We want to just drop it. It's going to slow you down in the race. And so take it off and be done with it. Starting with encumbrances and also including sins. The encumbrances may not in themselves be sinful but they do weigh us down and they hinder our race. Let's understand that, that it's more than just quit sinning. It's more than just the sins that will cause you to stumble. Uh, Obviously, the sins will tie you up. The sin so easily entangles us. Sin is a no-brainer. But the encumbrances that fall short of sin, some of the discretionary things that we do, the things that we do that, that are neither better nor the worse, that they're not rewardable, part of the discretionary will of God, We have encumbrances, and and all is lawful, but not all is profitable, see? And that's the category that describes an encumbrance. It's lawful, you're free to do it, but if it becomes an encumbrance, you've got to lay it aside, okay? You've got to lay it aside. And this is where we come to personal application and personal convictions on different things. If your golf habit, your your uh, pastime, your bowling league, uh, you know, nothing wrong with joining a bowling league. Uh, but if you join 14 bowling leagues and you're busy seven days a week at all hours of the day and night, I would su- suspect you've crossed the line into some kind of an encumbrance and it's impacting your church attendance, it's impacting your spiritual fruit, your availability to serve your brothers and sisters. They call you up because they need help and something's going on and Say, oh, I can't make it. I'm, I'm doing this right now, and then you're encumbered. And so each one of us have to come to those convictions. Am I playing in too many Scrabble tournaments? Am I, am I always out of the picture? And when, when called upon, um, 
you know, am I, am I not available? Am I then letting someone else take my crown? When the Bible says, let no one take your crown. So encumbrances. And if you want more on that, uh, Jesus talked about it in Luke 8 and Luke 9 and these things. And there were disciples or people who could be disciples, but they wanted to do other things first. You know, they had to go bury their father or they had to go check out a field they were going to buy or they had other temporal life things going on. Their career was in the way of, of their spiritual ministry. Run with endurance the race that's set before us. Every believer has a race. And you don't pick out your own. You don't choose the race you want to run. He puts it in front of you and you start running. They're called works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should accomplish them. This is Ephesians 2.10 that uh, usually gets overlooked when people are reciting Ephesians 2.8 and 9 by memory. They love those verses. I do too. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I mean, who doesn't like those? Those are great gospel verses. But then go one more verse beyond that and understand, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so that's what He's done in saving us. And the whole course is set forth in that, uh, in that regard. And so um, you have other passages like Acts 13, 36. David served the purpose of God in his generation and then was uh, died and buried and laid to rest. And that expression, the purpose of God in his generation, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Uh, just because this is now, uh, my dad died last year, a generation has passed. And now I'm starting to say, okay, now I'm the, I'm the new uh, patriarch of, of the clan when it comes down to that. And uh, so you start thinking about generations and what, what am I supposed to have done before my generation departs? And then our children have to take the torch and, and move on from there. Paul knows his uh, work was finished in 2 Timothy 4.7 when he says, I finished the course. I fought the good fight. He knew that there was a crown waiting for him because he didn't quit early. He didn't stop. You know, the competitor's not allowed to just stop when he feels like it to say, okay, the race is over, where's my trophy? You finish at the finish line. And the finish line uh, is, is the one that's set by the, the person that designed the race. And so when we're told to run with endurance the race that's set before us, the race isn't over until the race master tells us it's over. And he brings us home. How sad it is to consider that the race is over when it's not yet complete. And I think there's too many... Um, believers that are like that. They're like, they're, they're retired, if you will. And there's no retirement from the Christian way of life except our promotion to glory. Philippians 3 verses 13 and 14 addresses this. Paul says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He wants to grab the prize. And he knows that there's a prize to grab because Jesus grabbed him. <laughs> so the reason why he grabbed me is now I want to reach forward and grab what he's got for me to grab, to lay hold of. And he says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Too many Christians think that they've, they've done enough. Well, you know, I've done enough. And, and I've put in my time. I've paid my dues. It's somebody else's turn. Right, which is, you know, whenever there's things... We need help in the nursery, help in the Sunday school. We need help in whatever, in committees and, and different things. Well, I've done my time already. It's somebody else's turn. But wait a minute. You're still running your race. What are you doing? Are you retired already? So um, different things there. It was called short-timer attitude in the military. And then we would call them road MPs. R-O-A-D was retired on active duty. That they were, you know, not quite done with their active duty yet, but they might as well be because their mentality was such a short timer that uh, they weren't fully engaged with the same mission the rest of us were doing. And so he says, I press on toward the goal. This is still Philippians 3. Uh, verse 14 says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what it's about. It's about pressing on. It's about accelerating. It's not about coasting or relaxing or slowing down. It's about accelerating. Excel still more. And how sad it is to consider the race over when it is not yet complete. 
which brings us now to verse 2. The number one imperative for um, how to do this, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. All right, so we're looking here, it's a participle actually describing the attendant circumstances, the means by which you can run with endurance. When your eyes are fixed on Jesus, it's motivation, we keep running. We get our eyes off the Lord, we're in trouble. Because we get our eyes on ourselves, we get our eyes on our problems, we get our eyes on other things. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, two things, the Alpha and the Omega, the source and the destination, the beginning and the end, author and perfecter, who for the joy set before him, notice that, for the joy set before him, look at that, Jesus did the same thing he's asking us to do, there was something set before him and that was the joy to be seated at the Father's right hand, to, to hear the well done, good and faithful servant, to hear the, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, the, the, uh, the joy set before him. It wasn't what Satan set before him. Satan set before him the kingdoms of the world and all his glory and all this. And he said, you can have that without the suffering. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, no, because his eyes were fixed on the joy set before him. And his joy was to do the will of the Father. So who for the joy set before him? And I love that because that's the pattern. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And what are we saying? That's the joy set before us. Jesus is the joy set before us. You see how this works? So who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God? What can we not endure if we do the same thing he did? If we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, can we endure? Well, we've got a cross we're supposed to take up. We're going to encounter the shame. The pattern is there for us sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then it says, consider him. We'll talk about that when we get to verse 3. And so the key here is fixing your eyes on Jesus, keeping our eyes on the Lord. It's essential to victory. Keeping our eyes on the Lord is essential to victory. When you take your eyes off the Lord, you're doomed. You're doomed. Carnality is at the threshold and you're halfway carnal already. (laughs) I mean, as a sin of omission... If if we're commanded to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord and then we don't, is that not a sin of omission? Are we not already expressing a mental attitude that's contrary to what we've been taught, contrary to what the Word of God tells us to do? I would say yes. And so before we ever commit a personal sin, we've already committed this sin of omission by not keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. So I think a lot of us are carnal before we even know we're carnal. Because the attitudinal reality has already affected us before we even dream up the the nefarious sin plot that we wanted to do in the first place. I like to uh, bring in illustrations of this. And Colossians 3 is the text that we have every time we have a, a baptism service. Have you attended an Austin Bible Church baptism service before? Colossians 3 is the passage we cite. Every time the, uh, the, the believer comes up out of the water, Colossians 3 1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. That's, a, that's the reality. We have been raised up with Christ. Of course, the, the person getting baptized has been raised up. That's just a picture. I've never yet just left anybody under the water. You always bring them back up after you dunk them there. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He died, he was buried, and then he was resurrected. And so we dunk you, we bring you back up. You've been raised up with Christ. And it says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Keep seeking the things above. I would say that's a functional equivalent to fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Keep seeking the things above. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Guess what? Your problems are on earth. Your testing's on earth. Your uh, nemesis, uh, the coworker that hates your guts, he's on earth too, Okay? Keep your eyes on the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Understand your new life. Dead to this world, dead to sin, alive to righteousness, alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. What a thrill to consider these things, that he counts us worthy to partake in these things, that by his grace, he uh, places us in his son. So keeping our eyes on the Lord is essential to victory. Peter's the other example I like to turn to in Matthew 14, 30. In Matthew 14, 30. You ever feel like walking on the water? All right. You know, you can walk on the water, spiritually speaking, in a metaphor, spiritual application. You just got to keep your eyes on the Lord. Matthew 14 and verse 30. I got all kinds of gospel songs rattling around in my head this morning. Two of the hymns that we sang were uh, done by the Cathedral Quartet. They were done as a cappella pieces and, and uh, just amazing. I'm going to put them on the stereo on my drive home today. But here's another one the cathedrals did called You Can Walk on the Water. You Can Walk on the Water. Okay? And, uh, but you've got to keep your eyes on the Lord. That's the key. Get your eyes off the Lord and you start to sink. All right, so Matthew uh, 14 and, you know, we, we knocked Peter a lot, but um, at least he was out of the boat. You know, the other guys were still sitting in there. So Jesus comes walking across the water. <laughs> he, sent them a, he sent them ahead first of all. He went up on the mountain to pray, and then they're, the, they're halfway across the Sea of Galilee, and, they, and he comes walking to meet them. It says in verse 25, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and the when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, that they were terrified. And they said, it is a ghost, a phantasma. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I. Or take courage, I am. It is I. Do not be afraid. And so Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And that's why I'm not critical on Peter. He's stepping out. Uh, the other ones, uh, whatever they were thinking. And so Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and came toward Jesus. See, that's how it works. Keep your eyes on the Lord. The race set before Peter on this day was going across the lake and he was running it. But verse 30 says, seeing the wind, that's the problem. Why was he looking at the wind? (laughs) Right? Why did he stop looking at Jesus? Why was he looking around at the wind? Seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? They got into the boat and the wind stopped. So this uh, this pattern as well, I think, is marvelous for fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And, uh, you know, you do this and the Lord takes you into a ministry you never expected, takes you into a work assignment you wouldn't have picked out for yourself, takes you into uh, a spiritual duty that uh, would otherwise just intimidate you all kinds of ways. And he would, you know, run for the hills if he could, but you can't because your eyes are fixed on Jesus. And uh, you know that you're where you're supposed to be. And so we have the principle there. Author and perfecter of faith. The author and perfecter of faith. And this tells us a couple of different things. This tells us that faith has a source, but this also tells us that faith um, has a process, a perfecting process. And that perfecting process is is called suffering. It's called difficulties, testing. And uh, if you've never been tested, then you have an imperfect faith because it's never been tried, it's never been perfected. And all you have is a lot of theory and a lot of bright ideas and a lot of, but you've never put it into practice. You've never actually had to live your faith. You've got classroom instruction. You've got classroom instruction that says, you know, walk by faith, not by sight. But then you have the testing that hits you. Then you have the conflict. Then you have family issues, health issues, financial issues. You've got other things going on. And all of a sudden, the, the classroom, the, the notes in your notebook seem kind of academic. And you realize, wow, I've got to live this out. Do I trust the Lord or not? Am I looking at the Lord or not? See, 
And we have the issue there. So faith has a source or an origin. He is the author of faith, but it also has a perfecting process. And even Jesus himself was perfected through his sufferings in his first advent incarnation. And he started perfect. (laughs) But then he got perfected. It pleased the Father to perfect the author of their salvation with sufferings. That's how he can pray for us. That's how he intercedes. He identifies with us. Different illustrations there. You know, the... um, Well, it's been so long since we even talked about it, but the... uh, I forget when uh, <laughs> we get some newer members and newer folks and, and uh, they, don't re- they don't even realize uh, about my migraines, for example, because they haven't seen one of those uh, amnesia spells. Or uh, they, even earlier than that, they had no idea I was diagnosed with a kidney disease in 1996. And um, it's fine. It's just sitting there. It hadn't done anything in 20 years. <clears throat> but... You, when that diagnosis first hit, and this is the thing, it was like, welcome to the ministry. Because I became pastor in November of 95. And then in, uh, I had a sheriff's department physical in January of 96, and they found, they found blood in my urine, and they sent me through some other tests and a biopsy, all kinds of stuff. Turns out I got a kidney disease. Oh, what do you know? Okay? And it's a kidney disease that may sit there for 50 years before it does anything. And then when it does decide to come alive, it will lead to kidney failure. And of course, kidney failure can kill you, and, and our kidney failure does kill you. And uh, so this was my welcome to the ministry. So you want to be a pastor? All right, here you go. Kidney disease, kidney failure, death. <laughs> and uh, of course, Sharon was pregnant with our third child, and I'm, okay, here we go. What I'm illustrating is the the sense of um, accountability and the sense of um, you know all right now hot shot you think you're you think you're something because you got ordained and you got a pulpit and you're now a pastor well you better be living your faith it's not just an academic it's not just Greek and Hebrew exegesis you got to live this out do you believe this Bible you're preaching do you believe that God's grace will sustain you or are you just some phony some schmuck that's up there. So the illustration being in the, in the perfection of faith, Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith, that he's the source, he provides, and then he perfects. And that perfection comes with the difficulties along the way. All right, so um, we had discussed this in a previous context in a different way back in Hebrews chapter 2, In verse 10, it was fitting for him, that is, it was proper, appropriate, it was right, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things. Notice that? Origin, source, and conduit, and destination. For whom and through whom are all things. In bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So Jesus is the author of our salvation, but he himself was perfected in his faith, in his earthly walk. And he was perfected through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. It really helps us to identify as brethren when we identify with our sufferings, the fellowship of his sufferings. We'll have more to say on that in the Colossians hour because uh, what's filling up of Christ's afflictions. Paul says, I've done my share <laughs> in filling up what remains of Christ's afflictions. You and I have to do our share is the uh, implication there. So the author and perfecter of faith demonstrates both the origin and destination of our race. You know what? Jesus is the starting line. You ever think about that? When you got saved, whenever that was, and for me it was September of 73, for you it was whenever, when you got saved, Jesus was the starting line of your race. He's also the finish line. Because when we die or rapture, who are we going to be with? We're going to be with Jesus. We're going to be with the Lord. Absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. 
This is a doctrine we've been studying in Colossians 1 when it comes to Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. He's the icon, the image of the invisible God. He is the prototokos, the firstborn of all creation. And it tells us, it says, uh, by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. We have a powerful creation passage in Colossians chapter 1. It's more powerful than Genesis. All Genesis gives us is the visible, the earthly, the physical. Birds, plants, animals, creepy crawly things. Man, okay? But Colossians tells us about the invisible, the spiritual realm, the dimension of the angels. Jesus created all them too. He is before all of them. He created all of them. And the last expression of Colossians 1.16 says, all things have been created through him and for him. Everything that's here is for Jesus Christ. The Father designed it to glorify Jesus Christ. And so it's through him and it's for him. That's a powerful doctrine. It's also a blessing. It allows us to quit being the center of the universe. It allows us to not be self-centered, but to be Christ-centered. And if I'm going through a test and I'm, I'm tempted to do that carnality question of why me, you know, why me and why now and why so much? And it's, it's, it's not about me. And it's not even about now. It's for Jesus. It's for Christ. And it's for eternity. This is just a momentary light affliction that's preparing for the eternal weight of glory. And it's the glory of Jesus. He's both the starting block and the finish line. Jesus' own earthly life is the prototype for our application. His own earthly life is the prototype. See, we fix our eyes on Jesus, and what did he do? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, seated at the right hand of God. Jesus wasn't looking around at the Pharisees, looking around at the, at the, uh, the different tests and the things. He, his eyes were firmly fixed on his Father. So fixing our eyes on Jesus, what can we not endure? even as Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame. You know, if you have the right motivation, if you're looking at the right thing, and you don't tear your eyes away from it, you keep the objective in view, what can you not do? I'm going to tell you, it's powerful. In spiritual terms, it's essential. Even in temporal terms, there's even a, a, a temporal benefit in, that reflects this in secular life. You know, whether you're talking about financial planning or long-term investments or you're talking about diet and weight loss or you're talking about, I don't care what endeavor you're talking about, memorizing four-letter Scrabble words, whatever you're doing, okay, there's over 4,000 of them. So start with the A's and there's only 205 of those and then go to the B's. And, but the point is, if you keep the objective in view and don't get distracted, you're constantly advancing towards that purpose towards that goal that's what jesus did that's what we're committed to do john chapter 13 and uh verses 12 through 17 This is in the upper room on the night in which he's betrayed. So this is Thursday, April 2nd, 33 AD. And uh, he goes here to have the Passover dinner. And uh, then he washes their feet. So, uh, yeah, verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come forth from God, was going back to God. Origin and destination. For Jesus, it was from the Father back to the Father. So he got up from supper, laid aside his garments. Taking a towel, he girded himself. And he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. And Peter thinks he knows better than Jesus and tries to object. <laughs> anyway, 
Um, you get down to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, and I imagine they were speechless, especially after Peter got chewed out. Nobody else was going to say anything, right? They just quiet. Okay. And then he's done. And, um, and, and, and Judas is still in the room, by the way. He washed Judas's feet. The traitor, he washed his feet. And so they're all silent and he goes back to his chair and he's dressed again and he says to them, do you know what I have done to you? Because this is a learning moment. He's making sure they've learned it. You call me teacher and Lord, for you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. It's the principle. It's the illustration for the application. If you think you're too good for something, you're not imitating Christ. If you think something is beneath you, you're not imitating Christ. He says, for I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Now, I believe this is an example that it's a pattern It's not a literal ritual. We don't add foot washing along with communion and baptism for the uh, ordinances that we observe uh, at Austin Bible Church. But there are churches who do. They have a foot washing ordinance on the basis of this passage here. I think the better hermeneutic is that we take it as a pattern and the illustration is one of humility, of service. That you do the most unpleasant thing as washing Judas Iscariot's feet if that's what Jesus asks you to do. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. For I gave you an example, and you should do as I did. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. So we're saved, we're bondservants of Jesus Christ. Why do we think we're entitled to something that he wasn't entitled to? You say, well, I don't, I don't want to suffer. Well, he did. Why am I exempt? Why do I think I'm somehow I get a pass that, that Jesus didn't get? So a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. See, just studying the doctrine is not enough. You've got to know it, then you've got to do it. If you're a hearer only and not a doer, you're deluding yourself. You think it counts for something. You've got to be a hearer and a doer. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Remember, it's a sin of omission if you know the, the good to do and you do it not. So Jesus' own earthly life is a prototype for our application. We can run with endurance the race that's set before us because he did. He did. He demonstrated it. Hebrews 2, 7 through 18. The doctrine we taught way back in chapter 2. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Think about the kenosis when Jesus emptied himself, how he humbled himself. He is God the Son, the eternal God, the creator of the universe. But for a while, he was lower than the angels. For a little while, lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor. See, he couldn't get that crown without the humility and have appointed him over the works of your hands. Notice um, verse 9, we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Notice that, because of, it's causative. Because of, if he doesn't go to the cross, he doesn't get this glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It benefits us. He's the prototype. Again, for it was fitting, we talked about this, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. We read that on the other point. Getting down to uh, verse... Let's see. How about verse 12? I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. 
You know where that comes from? That comes from Psalm 22. That comes from, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? These are words he spoke while on the cross, looking forward to finishing that work on the cross so that he can proclaim the name of the Father to his brethren, so that he could bring many sons to glory. Verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is, the devil. You realize it was his spiritual death that redeemed us. His spiritual death took care of the sin issue. So why did he have to die physically? Because this was another issue he has to identify with. This is another provision he has to make for you and for me because we face physical death. So he experienced that also to identify with us, to be our intercessor and to overcome this, uh, to render powerless the devil's power of, of death. And that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You know, when Satan gets an unbeliever all wrapped up and all worked up and all scared and all kinds of... Not just the unbeliever either, by the way. A carnal believer. Satan can get a carnal believer just as, just as uh, out of sorts. And then they're slaves. Then their fear just compels them. Then they're so, they're so bound by this fear and he's the one holding the, holding the leash. And so we need, a, we need an advocate. We need an intercessor. We need uh, Jesus, the forerunner, entering into the, within the veil so that we can run right in there right after him. That's how the book of Hebrews portrays it. Verse 16 says, Assuredly he does not give help to angels. He gives help to the descendants of Abraham as redeemed humanity, saved by grace through faith. You know, the angel of the Lord wiped out all kinds of cities and armies and did some powerful things in the Old Testament, but the angel of the Lord did not die at Calvary. The angel of the Lord did not go to the cross. It was God in the flesh. It was Jesus in his humanity, born of a virgin, lived this life, went and died on the cross for our eternal life. And not giving help to angels, He's the God-man saving each one of us. And so we have the provision there. All right. So Hebrews 2, 7 through 18. Kind of gets summarized here. Verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He suffered as we do. He understands it. He intercedes with that understanding. Since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Any test we face, he's able to come to our aid and intercede on our behalf. He had the full human experience. He's the prototype. One final verse that touches on this is Hebrews 6 and verse 20. We have an anchor. We have a table that they can't eat at and we've got an anchor. Verse 19 says, This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one that enters within the veil. So if you want this kind of stability, you better be within the veil. That's where your anchor is. Engage your priesthood. Get to prayer. Enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's why chapter 7 and following have been all about this priesthood. But he's the forerunner. Not the only runner, the forerunner. We run in right after him. So his earthly life is the prototype for our application. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. For consider him. Hebrews 12.3 says, Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Considering Jesus. So not just fixing your eyes on Jesus, but considering. You understand the difference? Fixing your eyes. I mean, you can, you can look at something. You can stare at something. You can, I can stare at the thermostat or I can stare at you know, something on the wall. I can stare at it for hours. 
but not even consider it or think of what it is or what I'm looking at. We're supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus and actively consider. Put the conscious thought to his suffering. It tells us what to consider. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. That's what we're told to consider. And when you study the life of Christ, of course, there's all kinds of things. The, the, the virgin birth, the Bethlehem manger, the, uh, the walking on water, I mean, all the, the, the multiplying the loaves and the fishes. I mean, do a life of Christ study one time. You've got, I think we've got 478 hours on the website and, uh, and a full notebook. You can do life of Christ and it's worthwhile. But for the purpose of this application, it doesn't say consider the consider the man born blind or consider the walking on water or consider the the swine. He says consider the hostility. Consider the hostility. He endured such hostility by sinners against himself. That's what our consideration should be as we fix our eyes on Jesus. Because it never stopped him. He never, he never got tripped up. He never uh, gave up. He never drew a line in the sand. He never bailed because of the hostility. The hostility didn't stop him from keeping his eyes fixed on the joy set before him. And it shouldn't stop us either. Are we going to encounter hostility? Of course. That's the promise. In this world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So we're going to have hostility. I would get worried if we didn't. You know, if, if there was no hostility, if Satan and his fallen world, if they had no problem with what we were doing here, I would seriously ask, what are we doing here? <laughs> okay? I mean, are we doing, are we doing what the Lord wants us to do? Because the, the adversary seems to be rather complacent at the moment. He's not not objecting, not throwing problems up there. He's not demonstrating any kind of hostility. In fact, he seems rather content with, with who we are and what we're doing. And I don't like that. There better be hostility. <laughs> A couple of men I've asked to pray about becoming deacons. Just know that um, not only you know, there's things that come with that. All right? And when you step into that ministry... It's like a bullseye on your back. It will ramp up. The testing will ramp up. That's why when I make those kind of phone calls, I want the husbands and wives praying together about it. Years ago, I had a wife tell me, don't you dare make my husband a deacon. I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and, uh, but this is the thing, because the hostility ramps up. So, consider him. He endured such hostility by sinners against himself. And in doing so, you will not grow weary and lose heart. How in the world can you lose heart when you're looking at our glorious Savior? Actively consider the undeserved suffering Jesus Christ endured and the purposes he accomplished in doing so. And the purposes he accomplished in doing so. See, Jesus wasn't just enduring out of a, a twisted psychological masochism or some kind of... He wasn't enjoying the, the hostility. The point isn't to endure it and just, you know, put a sticker up on a, on a score sheet to say, okay, I did that, I did that, I did that, I endured this, I endured that. It's what was accomplished in enduring those things. How was the word of God communicated? Who was edified? What fruit was born in that? What purposes were achieved? And more than one purpose, multiple purposes. Even, uh, even before Jesus, there's an Old Testament principle, I think, that applies in this. I like 1 Samuel 12, 24. Might otherwise be overlooked. 1 Samuel 12, 24.
Well, I don't want to read this whole chapter, so let's just focus. <laughs> um, all right, verse uh, 23 says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and the right way. All right, so this is when Saul was made king and they were wrong to ask for a king. But God said, all right, go ahead and give them a king. It's what they want. And in the permissive will, God gives them what they want instead of what they need. And instead of David, which is the real blessing, they're just 40 years too early in this. And, uh, but so he gives them Saul. And then Samuel, who didn't really enjoy the whole process here, but he's committed to praying. He's going to pray for the king. Not going to sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for King Saul. But I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth and with all with your heart for consider and, and I think the Septuagint Greek has the same uh, maybe not but consider what great things he has done for you. Consider this. What great things he has done for you. Don't get wrapped up about the hostility. Don't be sidetracked by the testing. There's a purpose for it. God is doing a great thing. And uh, part of what he's doing is building up your endurance. Something else he's doing is causing you to be more tender and more sensitive so that when your brother goes through something similar, you can come alongside and pray for him. Encourage him. You can have a heart to, uh, to, to bless him because you yourself have been through something like that. And so consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, in other words, he did all of this for me and I'm going to spit in his face, I'm going to throw it out the window, I'm going to just do my own thing in wickedness after God has already done this for me, that's, uh, that's horrendous. If you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. All right. Anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting here because these tests that we go through, including the hostility, any undeserved suffering that we go through, look what Job went through in the book of Job. There was a purpose in it. God's purpose, not just Satan's purpose. Sure, Satan had his purposes for what he was doing. That's Who cares? God permitted it. So when God permitted it, that tells us that God's got a purpose in it too. And his is the purpose that matters. Couldn't care less what Satan's trying to get done with his activity. I want to know what God's getting done with his activity. And when God permits it, that's, that makes it God's activity. So he permitted it. I want to know his purpose. So in Romans 8, it's a good thing to be uh, called according to his purpose. Right? I mean, don't you want all things to work together for good? I do. And in the testing that we go through, the things that we endure, the hostility against ourselves. Anyway, these things come together in this. Of course, Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Well, guess what? The image of his son, that came through suffering. He was perfected through suffering. If we're going to be conformed to that image, guess what? The firstborn of many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And he who did not spare his own son. This is the point. When you're, when, you, when you're asking for an exemption, when you want to opt out, when you're saying no thanks, or when you have an attitude that says, I shouldn't, this shouldn't happen to me. Well, why not? Because he didn't spare his own son. What makes you think he's going to spare you? I mean, really. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And the rest of that 
I mean, the, the protestant is long enough, but the apotosis is powerful. So thank you, Lord. Everything, everything can be ours in Christ and is ours in Christ. Remember that? Everything is for him and we're in him. How cool is that? So we have some suffering along the way. We have some undeserved suffering. We have some testing. We have some afflictions. Great. It's an honor and it's a privilege. Hebrews 3.1 also said, consider. Consider. This was an earlier consider before the chapter 12 consider. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so we have considerations there. Considering our Savior, learning from His example, observing His endurance in the face of undeserved suffering. What was accomplished? What would have been lost had He not endured? What would have, well, we wouldn't be saved. That's one thing. How about that? Had he not endured, had he given up, had he stormed out, had he had a little temper fit like we all do from time to time? He never did, not once. And as all it would have taken was one little act of disobedience and he would have no longer been the spotless lamb without blemish. And he couldn't have gone to the cross either. 2 Timothy 2, verses 7 and 8. I love these consideration imperatives. You know, and some of them are just kind of, they, they, they preach themselves. It's just obvious. Second Timothy 2 says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Well, we have the training ministry that we have. We train faithful men, they train faithful men, they train faithful men. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is what the Christian way of life is about. Anyway, these all, these all preach themselves. Verse 7 says, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you an understanding in everything. Consider what I say. When you ask, you receive. When you knock, it's open. When you seek, you find. When you consider, God doesn't just let you figure things out in your own wisdom. He teaches you. He shows you. He gives you the understanding He wants you to have every time you consider His Son. Consider Jesus and the hostility against Him. God Himself provides the understanding. You will see your own application and what you're learning from Jesus and His application. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. That's 2 Timothy 2, verses 7 and 8. Revelation 2, 3. Revelation chapter 2, verse 3. The angel of the church of Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men. The pastor here at Ephesus was uh, praised for a number of items except for the last item. He says, but <laughs> yet I have this one thing against you. But on the positive side of things, this pastor was faithful. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. You cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. You found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured. Notice for why? For my name's sake and have not grown weary. So when you're considering the purposes, when you're considering why he's calling us to do these things, this becomes our blessing. Ultimately, we're 
we're uh, fixing our eyes on Jesus. For my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. The problem for this pastor was that although he was still doing all the right things, uh, he had lost the love motivation that started it all. So actively consider the undeserved suffering of Jesus. In light of what Jesus has done on our behalf, how dare we grow weary or lose heart? He's done everything. And he provides even more. Do you need more grace? He gives more grace. Do you need more strength? He gives more strength. Running with endurance the race that's set before you. He has not placed a race before you and set you up for failure. He has not put a race in front of you that he knows you can't handle because everything he tests you with is not beyond what you're able to bear. He knows what you can handle. He's designed the race accordingly. And when you need more strength, he'll give you more strength. How dare we grow weary or lose heart? 1 Corinthians 15, 58. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 16. Galatians 6, 9. 2 Thessalonians 3, 13. In case I run out of time, but you know, when you consider what he's done, <laughs> he loved me ere I knew him, now all my love is due him. I mean, you, just, you put in perspective everything that he's done. I gave my life for thee. So many of our hymns reflect this, uh, this attitude. All right, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not vain in the Lord. You might think you're spinning your wheels. You might think it's empty. You might think you're not producing anything. But if you're running with endurance, the race that's set before you, God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. You're a fellow worker and he's the one that's doing the work. So be steadfast, immovable. Don't turn to the left or the right. Don't get off course. Stay in the race. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. Think about it. Everything he's done for us. Man, I've got, my sins are forgiven. I've got eternal life. I have a spiritual gift. I have, I'm, a, I'm baptized in union with Christ. I've been adopted as an adult son of the Father. I'm adopted into the royal family of God. See, and he's not going to boot me out like the queen might boot out a prince and princess that have other ideas. Okay? We're in the royal family of God. We're eternally in the royal family of God. So just start, you know, count your many blessings, name them one by one. Man, it's awesome. All these things he's done for us, and I'm going to lose heart now when he's already done so much. Just finish the course. It's going to end at 2 o'clock anyway when the trumpet sounds. It could be today. I'm just saying for by way of example. I'm not prophesying anything. <laughs> you could stone me if I'm a false prophet. I don't want to do that. As we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. And down to verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. I get it. The, the flesh is weak. The body is terrible. Things are broken and allergic and, and hurting. And it's just, it's, it's, it's a rotten body. I get that. A fallen body in a fallen world. But the next world is going to be perfect and so will our new bodies. How fun is that going to be? Galatians 6, 9. If you're visiting, this is the part of the sermon where I go really, really fast. I'm just out of time. And I lost Galatians. There it is. All right, Galatians 6, 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. The problem about due time is it's not our time, it's his time. The due time is when he chooses to end the course, not when we choose to say, okay, I'm done racing now, my race is over. No, due time is his, not ours. We will reap if we do not grow weary. Finally, 2 Thessalonians 3.13. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. 
something that will trip you up, and that is the busybody routine. Verse 11, we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. When he saved you into good works prepared beforehand, it wasn't the busybody salvation work assignment. We don't have time to be busybodies about everybody else's business. We've got to be about our Father's business. So such persons we command and exhort in the Lord. Work in a quiet fashion. Eat their own bread. And as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our Savior. I thank you for the example he set. I thank you for the Life of Christ series we were able to teach here, Father, over 10 years fixing our eyes on Jesus. And I thank you for that. I pray that we continue to uh, learn these lessons and make our applications that we observe specifically the hostility directed against him and how he endured the cross, despised the shame and was seated at the right hand of the Father. I pray that we likewise will endure what you call us to endure, despise what you call us to despise and uh, run with endurance this, this wonderful race. I thank you for a teaching local church where the Word of God goes forth and believers are growing. There's so much phoniness and entertainment and goofiness. Father, we don't have time for that. This this fallen world is getting darker every day. We want to shine brighter and brighter with the truth. So I do thank you for the living and abiding Word of God and the lampstand where brothers and sisters make, make Bible doctrine priority number one. And I thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.